Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our guest this week is not here to discuss a single book in the series, but in a way, all of them. We are joined by editorial director of the NYRB Classics, Edwin Frank. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So we just wanted to start by asking how you got interested in books and reading. Ah, well, I came from an academic family, so books were always around me when I was a child. But I wasn't an especially early reader. But what what made me first into an active reader, I guess I knew how to read before, but I don't remember knowing how to read, was that uh, when I was six, my mother had a Fulbright. We lived in Paris for a year, and I was put in a French school. Wow. And I didn't speak any French. But for Christmas, I was given a big golden book of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Nice. And sort of alone and hardly able to speak to my fellow classmates and so mm-hmm. on, I got totally absorbed in this book, which is a book I've long wanted to republish. It's a wonderful book illustrated by the Provinces. And it has, you know, it tells the stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It has wonderful sort of pseudo-Greek illustrations and identifies the different heroes and mythic characters in the Odyssey and so on. And and so I got totally wrapped up in that. That's awesome. And the other thing that made me very interested in books that year was my grandmother came to stay with us. My father had to go back to actually to the States. And she started reading me The Lord of the Rings when I came home from school. And I became totally, totally absorbed in that. I think well, it was The Hobbit for me, but I think that's the first book I fell in love with. Yeah. Well, I was given The Hobbit for my seventh birthday, and that, that I plunged into, uh, following up on the reading out loud of, of, of the, the rings. So, yeah, Tolkien and the Iliad. We can thank all the way back to Homer for your love of reading, <laughs> and look where it's got us. Yeah, right. Created a lot of great things from that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how the NYRB Classics began. So it began sort of incidentally almost and accidentally almost i was working as a freelancer for a project called the reader's catalog which was sort of a giant sears catalog of books in print that jason epstein started in the late 80s when independent bookstores began to wither on the vine and before actually barnes and noble had become the behemoth that by 1995 which is when we're talking about or 96 it had become yeah Anyway, I was working on this reader's catalog thing, and I was asked to sort of, it was broken up into different sections of, you know, there was a, there was a literature section, and then it was subdivided into Italian literature and things like that. And I was, my job was to sort of, to read through these sections and say what should be here that isn't and what shouldn't be here that is. And there were a lot of things that should have been there that weren't. And that was because they had gone out of print. The second edition of the Reader's Catalog had had a had been, well, computerized. So it immediately purged anything that was not in books in print. Sure. Based on that, I made with a colleague, Stephanie Smith, a list of books that had fallen out of print that it seemed like they shouldn't have and presented it to the owner of the Reader's Catalog, who's also the owner of the New York Review. And he said, I'll think about it. There was... A, some thinking about it that went on for some years, but eventually we were given the green light and began. 
how many of those books that were on your original list made it into the NYRB Classic series as a whole? I don't know. I have the list somewhere. In pa- our office is, mo- is in the process of moving and in the course of packing things up. I, I came on that list, but it's now all packed up because we haven't completed the move. Man, I'd love to see that list. <laughs> but, you know, a fair number of things were certainly on that list, like the Ackerley books mm. were ones that, uh, I mean, I can remember too, that being really going back to the Italian literature example I gave, that one of the things that astonished me was that Moravia was out of print for the most part, because mm. Moravia had been not only a staple of shelves and bookstores and of and houses when I was a kid, but, you know, Moravia was also published in mass market paperbacks, The Woman of Rome, and she came down looking like Anna <laughs> Magnani, sort of busting out and, uh, and so on. So, I mean, Moravia mm. had seemed almost, you know, trashily popular in a way, and that he had disappeared uh, completely was a surprise. So those, so the, the Moravias were from that. I'm sure what, a book that we don't have an imprint anymore was Cortazar's The Winners. Uh-huh. And that I'm pretty sure would have been on that early list. Mm-hmm. But there would have been others that were not like Sadeg Hedayat's The Blind Owl, which was recently reprinted in a new translation by maybe Grove. But at that point, I think was kind of in print. I mean, there were books in these sort of limbo positions. Sure. And then there were books that it was, it was the whole business of learning how, because there had been no publishing program at the review to speak of. There'd been the occasional publications of books by contributors that were scheduled for, which if they were topical. I mean, early on, there was a, a book about the Vietnam War when the review had you know, sort of cut its teeth on uh, Vietnam and opposition to the war. Mm-hmm. But there hadn't been anything other than that. So there was a lot of learning on the job of how to clear rights, of what it meant for rights. I mean, I can remember writing, inquiring about with some agent or said we were, or maybe it was a, a publisher, we want rights for such and such. And the publisher said, what kind of rights exactly do you want? Oh, we thought, well, we didn't really know. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you choose to call them classics? Well, I didn't, I didn't really want to call them classics. Interesting. Mm-hmm. There was, as always is the case with naming, a lot of going back and forth with everybody, you know, one person coming up with what seemed the absolutely perfect thing. And another person saying, are you kidding? That's awful. <laughs> you know, and then it went round and round. There was some input from a designer we were at that point affiliated with. And I think I was keenest on calling it NY New York Review Books, books a book project. Project was already beginning to be the kind of, you know, whatever. And it's now kind of an exhausted word. But in <laughs> 1997, it seemed sort of, you know, sort of coolly abstract. You're ahead of the curve. So that was what I was in favor of. I think there's another one that I had been spending many years not getting a PhD in art history and was interested in, in Poussin. And Poussin had a patron who developed around him a thing called the Paper Museum. Uh-huh. There's a whole series of drawings that, that people like Poussin made of artworks and so on. So I kind of liked that idea anyway. But terrible ideas, probably all of them. <laughs> Eventually it came to the point where, um, and, and I was pitted against classics on the ground that I thought it would be Frankly, uh, trivializing in America, classics, you know, cookies are classics, shoes are classics in America. Classics has no particular meaning. Whereas, though I don't think this was something I was saying at that point, but this emerged as a slight problem early on in the series' existence. In Europe, classics tends to still have a very specific meaning, which is largely the classics, that in, Mm. in in the antique sense of classics. So for those reasons, I was kind of against it. And I also... I mean, 
everything was in the making at this point, but I certainly from the beginning had, you know, a kind of Ezra Pound notion of mixing up the old with the new and the vital connection, or for that matter, traditional individual talent kind of notion of mixing up the old and the new. That was the vital connection. These were not books that were these were not classroom books or can I wasn't interested in there being, you know, in this being a canon by any means. So I worried about that. But I think it was Ray Hederman who finally said, oh, for Christ's sake, we could, there'll be our classics. In any case, let's just get on with it. <laughs> that was just as well, because we'd probably still be arguing about the name to this day. And classics proved it had its drawbacks, but it's proved livable with a book. What's the criteria for selection when you started? And has it changed over the years since you've gone on and built up through all this time? Well, I mean, the one major shift is that at the beginning, it was entirely a reprint house. So we were simply, whether we were certainly intent on doing books in translation, but we were doing books that had been translated and that, but had fallen out of print. Uh, we were not doing new translations and we now do quite a lot of new translations, you know, upwards of 40, above 40% of what we publish every year is a new translation at this point and, and of a work more often than not that has never been translated into English. So at the beginning, it was reprints. I mean, I was very, I was intent at the start in mixing it up. I mean, the very first book we did was, well, we had this engagement with this other designer, not the design we have right now. And we published about 16 books in that design before um, we and the designers parted ways. And that look, which was a sort of faux butcher paper treatment with a commissioned illustration and then a very large number on the front, which something I was not in favor of. So you had number one, number two, number three. I believe number one was sort of a tip of the hat to Anchor Books, which was the first American trade paperback company that was not, well, it was a mass market trim, but it wasn't, a, I can't find the word, but the, you know, kind of cheap paperback. And that had been founded by Jason Epstein, who was one of the founders of the Review and so on. So it was sort of a, a tip of that, that connection. And it, uh, it, had, it was a Chekhov's short, uh, a collection of Chekhov's longer short stories from <clears throat> later in his career put together by Edmund Wilson. And that too was a kind of tip of the hat to, well, to various things, to the Russians who are, I think, kind of foundational to sense of the modern novel and the modern short story and to Wilson as a certain kind of, as a non-academic, but critic who was also involved, interested in the relationship between politics and literature and, and the larger world, because certainly I didn't want to make this seem, you know, rarefied and unconnected to life as we, as, as it is lived. I mean, the point of books is to you know, inform life. Interesting. You have published some writers extensively, Eileen Chang, Vasily Grossman. What was it about those authors that warranted that treatment? Well, both were insufficiently known and were, and the ways in which they were known. I mean, Chang was hardly known at all. She certainly wasn't known to me before I started. I mean, I chanced on her in a reference book about, I think it was the Oxford Book of English Literature in Translation, mm -hmm. where there was a, there's an entry on Chinese, Chinese writing in English translation. I had never heard of her before. I happened to be thumbing through this book. Grossman I knew of, 
And Grossman had fallen out of print because, as a lot of Soviet writers did in, in the States in particular, because the, after 89, well, that was all over and we were done. And the, and the notion of, of reading these writers who'd been basically published as distant writers, they were no longer, you know, it, that was all over. That was history. And that was rather limiting in its own right in that if Grossman was a dissident writer, he was also actually very much a Soviet writer and that uh, he was frankly a pro-revolutionary writer for many years too. So, I mean, in both cases, both writers are quite extraordinary writers. Grossman has tended to be undervalued as a, as a, as just a writer writer that he was here. And it's still true amongst Russian readers to a degree that they still think of him as sort of a witness rather than one of their writers. And I think that's actually a real misestimation. I, I would agree with that as we're reading, we're reading Stalingrad right now. And he, he creates characters and, you know, settings so beautifully that I don't know why yeah. people would think it's just like a firsthand account of war. It yeah. is very artistic and novelistic in that sense. Yeah, that family is a very live family. And for all the constraints that that book was written under, there are also some very live discussions about art and life in there with, well, I'm not sure how far you are along in it, so I won't, <laughs> there may be some, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I agree. Yeah. And that book is written, you know, totally under, in a way, you'd say the Soviet thumb. But frankly, a lot of good art was done in the Soviet Union, notwithstanding a lot of the Soviet Union killed a lot of great artists too. And there were limits in which, which people could work. Anyway, so Grossman, I think, has been undervalued as a writer. Chang has been very valued, I mean, is highly, highly thought of in China, both the mainland and in the diaspora and increasingly. But She's sort of an original for Chinese writing. She has a nice thing where, I think it's an essay, I don't remember where it comes from at this point, where she says she, she writes about the little things that go on between men and women, which are, of course, not all that little. And that is partly an allusion back to, apparently in the Tang, the word for novelistic writing, basically fictional stories, going back to the Tang in Chinese as a genre, is apparently small talk or gossip. So... She's sort of gest gesturing at that whole tradition, but, but she's also writing in the middle of the 20th century and coming out of a context of, you know, the Japanese invasion. And in fact, turns to writing about those things partly because of censorship. She's in Japanese-occupied Shanghai, and she can't write about, I mean, so many Chinese writers to this day write about what, what's come to be called scar fiction, which is basically fiction in a kind of Maxim Gorky socialist realist tradition and about the abuses of the people in power and and chang writes really brilliantly about how people who aren't in power abuse each other when did you realize the series would last and was there ever a point when the future seemed precarious it was it was sort of touch and go for a couple of years but on the other hand it was quite surprising even in the first set of books even in that even in the old design books like a high wind in jamaica books like my dog tulip did surprisingly well i mean we didn't really have proper mm. distribu distribution at that point but they did it well enough to continue at that point and there was a point when i realized i guess it was the first it must have been maybe the first summer after we'd done it when an ad was run in the new york review listing all the books we published up to that time and putting them on sale. And some, a friend of mine who actually had been a, a teacher of mine in college said, wow, you published a lot of books. Anyway, it suddenly became, I mean, it was maybe 20 at that 
point, but I think it began to enter into people's minds that we were publishing books, and so we began to have an, an audience. And I feel like quite often when you, like, High Wind in Jamaica is incredibly accessible and exciting book. I feel like as long as you let the reader know what the book's about and you get them excited to read it, they'll pick it up, which is sad yeah. why these books fell out of print when they're like this. Yeah, it astonished me that High Wind in Jamaica had fallen out of print at that point, because it is a totally gripping story and unnerving as, a, as well. I mean, it's in a way up there with things like the lottery and so on. And we've always mm -hmm. Castle as a book with, with a real, real creepiness to it. And at the same time with real sort of moral depth, though I think it's very much a, a young writer's book. But one way in which we were lucky was we got involved in doing this at a point where the so many of the old houses had been had become corporate. The emphasis had become on, and they were publicly owned, and the emphasis had become on growth rather than publishing programs in a curious way. And the way to get growth was to have a big, big hit, a Stephen King or a J.K. Rowling or something like that. That was what made your stock, your shareholders happy. And so the backlist, which had been, you know, in the past had been treasured really by publishers was was neglected for a while and these books were allowed to go out of print and that left it left them open for us do you moving more into the the present day do you think of the series now as a whole or do you approach them more as individual books or potentially both at the same time i guess both at the same time i mean i think of the ser the series is the series is for me a kind of form of exploration, and I kind of hope that it will be that for readers as well. I mean, in a, in a, both on principle and for practical reasons in a way. I mean, practically speaking, I hope that people having, you know, stumbled on a book they remember loving and are happy to see back in print or that somebody has told them about that they do love will say, I mean, I, I haven't heard of this book, but the way it's described here on the back of the book, mm. or something like that, given I like that other book, let me give this one a chance. But also on principle in that I think, you know, books, books communicate with each other across time and space. I mean, there's another way in which I suppose the series is in, in which has been sometimes frustrating in recent years in a way that the, the choices you make as in life at a certain point limit the things you can do later. Uh -huh. And there are certain writers whom I have made a commitment to and I'm happy to have made a commitment to, like Grossman, like Chang, like Platonov, uh, like Victor Serge, and Anchette, you know, Tovi Janssen to some extent, who now, you know, a new season comes around and the, those people, those legacies need to be tended to. And it would be nice to look back on the series and do something that we haven't done at all before at this point and do something that really breaks out of the kinds of, of boxes that we have checked. But those are all really interesting writers. And, and at this point, we're pretty much done with Victor Serge. So that, that opens some space. I would love to do more Japanese literature. I, I found it very difficult to get good leads on Japanese literature over the years. The Japanese novel in the 20th century is actually quite amazing. I would like to do, there's a whole kind of book that Penguin does that I sort of envy them, though I don't know that the Penguin classics that might be happy enough, which is, I mean, great pre-novel, before the novel took over the world, books from the, the larger epics and folk tales and things like that. 
and uh, I'd like to do more of those sorts of things. So there are lots of areas that I would like to open up more. How much does the marketability of a book factor into your decision making? That's something that I've been curious about. Are there books that you would really like to publish, but that you're not able to because they wouldn't sell or you don't believe that they would? I mean, my sort of rule of thumb for years has been that when it comes to reprints, I think that there should, that I have to be able to make a case in my mind that there is, that there is some, that there's a reason that this should be of new interest. And I have to kind of believe that that case, you know, it may not succeed, but, but nonetheless, that it's there to be made. So, I mean, that's tended to rule out cult books on the grounds that cult books tend to be bought only by the people who are already members of the cult. <laughs> who then may be very happy to see a new version of it and will go out and buy it and tends to rule out things like you know, i used to occasionally get somebody writing in i don't get it anymore you know ruskin's uh, stones of venice that's a great book well that's a very long book in many volumes it used to be available in practically in old and increasingly decrepit editions in practically every used bookstore in the country and I mean, my general thought was that those books that I can't make that case exist in libraries, public and private. And therefore, there is no reason to spend the money on bringing out the book, even if it's a book that is, I mean, I'm actually quite interested in Ruskin, and I don't know that I would do The Stones of Venice, but I, I have actually recently thought about doing a, been talking to various people about how to, how to do a Ruskin book, but it hasn't quite gelled. But anyway, that would be that would be the limit. If it's a book that's never been translated, that seems to me just a great book, then it seemed we we that one can sort of balance the different kinds of books you're doing so that there's room to do that book and let it find its readers, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But if it doesn't find it right away, uh, that's all right. You know, now it, it deserves to be in those libraries, public and private, and to have its have its chance. Yeah. I mean, an example of books that I love that don't, that, that people don't seem to have picked up very much, and I wish they had, are the late 19th century Spanish novels that we've translated, one by Alas, His Only Son, truly, I mean, Chekhovian, but I mean, Spanish, the, the, another by Perez Galdos, Tristana, which was made into a movie by Buñuel, both sophisticated, psych psychologically sophisticated, and totally surprising, jaw-dropping novels, which are nothing like English novels published at that time and are not really, they have influence from the French novel, uh, French novels, but the social material in Spain is really very different. And that means the psychological material is very different too. And anyway, they're wonderful books. Nobody seems to want to buy them. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll start pushing them for you, Edwin. <laughs> they sound great. Does your approach to selecting fiction and nonfiction differ, as well as translations versus English language books? Nonfiction, finding good nonfiction is hard. I wish we had more nonfiction than we did. And uh -huh. good nonfiction also often then does find an audience, a surprisingly steady audience. I'm always on the lookout for an, a, a nonfiction book that seems to have, you know, outlasted its its moment and to have remained current. And that, you know, can vary from things like Finley's The World of Odysseus, which Mary Beard would say basically everything about that book now is not support, supported by recent scholarship, but 
the book still kind of lays out the problems that you need to consider when when thinking about the Homeric world in a way that is remains perfectly relevant, even if the answers aren't the same. So that's the kind of book that I'm very fond of, is, is a book that is, well, the French have a word for it, which is higher vulgarization, but basically... Pop- <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> word. So there's that. I mean, there's another kind of nonfiction, like the wonderful book about the history of wind mm-hmm. that we did. But that's just a kind of, that's a really quirky book full of odd facts. And, and that's sort of like something like Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which we did fairly early on. And that was a moment when I felt that the series was going to last, was that it took me, there was some question of whether we should reprint that book. And I happened to be in Paris for on a vacation and the French had just translated all 1300 pages of Jacobean prose. And I thought, if the French can translate it, at least we can reprint it. But then it did well. <laughs> <laughs> what is your view on editing translations where you as an editor may not know the original language? Do you think that an editor or a publisher must know that language in order to do the job properly? No. And and a lot of the best editors of translated literature have relatively limited, have, well, I can think of, of one, a good friend who frankly doesn't have any language other than English. No, I mean, the editor's role here is to be the first and most attentive reader in English. And the editor's job is also to be willing to learn about the ways in which the different character of languages affect their different literatures. I remember actually translating with the first Eileen Chang we did, and I certainly had no knowledge of, I know no know, know Chinese, and I had no knowledge of Chinese except for the, you know, I'd read some Chinese poems and things like that. But that the story coming in and my seeing, my feeling there was a continuity problem, that something that had been put in the past or in the present surely had to have been in the past, given the nature of the fairly short scene and saying as much to the translator and her saying, to me, uh, you're probably right. Yeah, that probably should have all been in the past. And then I thought, how in God's name could she not have known the difference between something in the past and the present? But Chinese doesn't have tense. Tense is, tense is, is by context and so on. And this is a complicated love story with going back and forth, where in fact the future is in some ways continually foreshadowed by the past of these two characters. And so it was something. So, you know, I learned something in, in doing that. So the trans, the editor has to be open to learning in that way and open-minded. But I mean, the editor, I think, has to be firm in dealing with the translators, especially in an era when the line, it's become a cliche of translators' presentation that they are observing the strangeness of the original and they are trying to keep it. And this is Walter Benjamin did everybody a disservice in his wonderful essay on the task of the translator, where, you know, he said that you're you're supposed to hear the translation echoing off a far hill, like the primal language or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I think the editor needs to say to a translator who, for example, comes and and let's say translating from, from French keeps calling World War II, the Second War. That's stan- in French, Deuxième Guerre is just standard for what the Second World War is. In, Fr- in, in English, it's not the Second War, and so calling it that in French is not anything, it's not a stylistic, it's not a stylistic marker. Gotcha. So you have to be alert to what the real stylistic markers are, where the voice emerges, and, and then, you know, once upon a time, I think I would have been in favor of saying that you have to 
bring over the book as much as pot. I mean, you have to bring over the, the quirks of the original voice, but you have to make them English language quirks. That's still sort of true, but I, I, with time, I've come to feel that there's a certain amount of accent is also okay in translations. There can be a slight Frenchness to a, fr a translation from French, but it's, it's a delicate business. Definitely. When selecting books, do you think much about representation? And do you feel an obligation to achieve a certain level of diversity between your books, whether it is national, genre, anything of the like? Yeah, I like to mix things up, but I'm not, I have never set out to be programmatic about it. In the sense, I think I sort of, I prefer to kind of bounce things off each other. I think of the case where I got quite interested, I think it's still probably true, we may publish more Hungarian authors than anybody else. But, you know, you want to be careful not suddenly to find yourself only doing Hungarian authors for a while and so on. So, you know, and I've also thought of the series, this is the virtuous side, I suppose, but of what I, the, the drawback I was describing before certain commitments lead you, well, that you you go on honoring in a way. There are certain threads in the series, like Hungarian literature, for example. So I've, I've wanted to be representative of literatures mm -hmm. and the different ways in which literatures, especially if those literatures are different from the way we, you know, do things with genre that are quite different from the things we're used to seeing done with genre. That was, say, my point a while ago about the Spanish, the late 19th century Spanish novel. It's really a bird of a different feather from, though connected to the French one or the Russian one, or as I said, one of the reasons I regret the Japanese one is that, that given how heavily invested we are in a sense in the novel, and given, and frankly, our literary culture is invested in the novel, those traditions which treat the genre differently are of, are of great interest. It's also of interest, I mean, places where the novel comes later, because the novel really does start as a European genre and then spread to the world at large. And by saying that, of course, I'm saying, I'm effectively saying that things like the tale of Genji and the dream of the red chamber and things like that aren't in my view they are they are great books and they are great long fiction made up stories about people but i think they stand at a remove from from the novel as it's developed and been, and still handed down to us but there are things like the arabic novel is very very different and it's another thing i i would wish we had much more arabic literature than we do i can only i mean i would plead first of all my own ignorance of it i only began to get a sense of it when i was on a board for the the Booker International a few years ago, but along with the ignorance, it's also that there there has been problems of distribution across the Arab-speaking world of copyright and so on, which have also limited the ways in which the limited access to, for readers to those. And I would like to do more than than we have done to try and try, try and open up that kind of space, which has been for various reasons kind of closed off or. I mean, the Arab novel in translation has chiefly been published, and, and, and it's, it's a good job, but it's limited distribution by the, the American University in Cairo Press was the, for many, many years. But that's not a press which, sadly, that has distribution to most independent bookstores where people might now might come upon those books. Gotcha. You said earlier that you have difficulty getting leads in Japanese literature. Mm -hmm. So when you're when you're kind of putting the feelers out to expand more into Arabic literature or different languages, do you have to rely on like relationships with people who 
work in publishing in that language predominantly or wait for recommendations to come to you through the through the email? <laughs> yeah, sort of all of that. There were traditionally a few agents. I mean, the whole situation is changing quite rapidly, which is good in that the, you know, frankly, wealthier Arab countries are getting into patronage of the arts in a way that was not really the case before. You have things like the Sharjah Book Fair and so on, which are which have grown by leaps and bounds. There is certainly post post our 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 Middle Eastern uh, adventures like Iraq. There has um, you know generation a new generation has grown up that is is more attentive to what's happening in that part of the world and and people. More people are taking Arabic and a, a group of people. I mean, you know, I think when we began, it would have been true to say there were probably two or three Arabists, people who were translating into English from Arabic mm. at all. And now there are many more. And that helps. I mean, that helps to have a whole, a real pool of translators to draw on, both from the point of view of, of having people out there reading things so and hearing more and from them about what there is. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on republishing as a trend now it seems like there's a lot of you know different little presses that are bringing back books into print do you feel that that's healthy for the publishing industry do you think about these other presses being out there do you think that they all contribute to something a larger you're all contributing to the same goal or that you have a separate goal i think we're all i think that the the endeavors are complementary i mean i think there are novelists who really were overlooked this is especially true of black writers whose work, there was a period in the 60s when it wasn't being overlooked, but that work was then often let, to get, let go out of print. And, the, and so I think there's very useful work being done there of bringing those writers back into print. I think it's useful to, I mean, I, I also think there's a, another moment when I thought that the series was a, a keeper, if you will, <laughs> or at least something had changed was when there was a whole, it must have been around 2008, the nation led the back of the book with a, a piece about Nightmare Alley that, that was a reprint. So it seemed to be, I've, I've had a theory, which I've mentioned, I've, you know, I've aired elsewhere, that people who, at a time when there are lots of other ways to get information and entertainment than books, and when reading itself has become sort of a hop, skip and jump kind of thing, scrolling and what you will, those people who are still devoted to reading books are on the average probably comparatively more sophisticated than they used to be. When in another way, when it was a healthier environment for new books, when the Book of the Month Club, for example, would feature Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus or something like that. And, you know, you would find it on coffee tables across the country. In a way, that was a much better time for books because hundreds of thousands of copies were being sold of those books. But now, you know, there's a more concentrated group of people who, and that, that group of people is also interested in the past of books and how taste comes to be made. Uh, I think book culture as a whole becomes an object of, of attachment for those, those sorts of readers. And I think you're seeing some of that in these reprint series. The one Faber has been pulling out some interesting things in, in England and, you know, the McNally Jackson one and so on. There's another thing that's going on, which is simply that under the during the pandemic, Backlist suddenly sold in a way that it had not been sell sold much more reliably than new books. 
and publishers, big mm -hmm. corporate publishers are sort of rushing are in some sense, you know, throwing whatever, throwing stuff at the wall to see if it sticks and it's bad. It's in their, it's in their coffers and vaults. So why not? And that's had a good, mm. I mean, it's a good thing, for example, that Sylvia Townsend Warner has been put in print comprehensively in England by Penguin at this point. But it's hard not to look back to the last 20 years and think of how Penguin was, could have been doing that for the last 20 years, but it wasn't. <laughs> Where you been? <laughs> <laughs> what does the future of the NYRB classics look like to you uh, from this day and time? How do you see it evolving? Well, I mean, I would like to do some of those things, I, uh, to do more of the sorts of things that I've described that we haven't done as much of. I would like, I mean, this has been, for many years, it was, this was chiefly me and my colleague, Sarah Kramer. We now have Susan Barba, who is buying a fair number of books. And, and of course, we're doing some new books as well. And Alex Andries, who are both younger. And I think, you know, I mean, one one thing, because a lot of it has been me, my taste is, is very centered on, is my taste, I found my formation, as the French say, was in Europe, chiefly in European literature. Mm. Well, and, and frankly, more European literature than, than America. At one point, I had a, a pet project of writing a book about growing up in America in the European novel, for whatever reason that, that. So, you know, I would like to see it would be nice for the series to venture outside of the limits of my own taste, which inevitably has its limits. Mm -hmm. Not that, you know, the books we've done are, are, I think, very good books, but they're not the only good books to be done. Sure. I can't wait to see where the red thread takes us. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I do in general want to keep, I mean, that I think it's important to to let, you know, accident and, and serendipity figure. And just when something shows up, you asked earlier about are there books that just it seemed that there was no market for them. Mm -hmm. And I remember Simon Lace's Hall of Uselessness, which is his collected essays coming in from his Australian publisher. He, you know, he's a Belgian man who was a sinologist whose professional career was mostly spent in Australia, though he wrote for the New York Review and various places. But anyway, he was based there. And great big book, 600 pages. And I had read his essays over the years. And, but I mean, my immediate thought was absolutely not. It's just we can't pay 600 pages by an Australian essayist. Yeah. <laughs> but I started reading the essays and there were some that were just too good not to put in print. And so, you know, damn the torpedoes full steam ahead. And <laughs> it's a wonderful book. In fact, we ended up adding to the book. We added some of the things that had come wow. up in the, uh, in <laughs> That's the awesome. French collected essays. And we translated some that had not been translated, like his wonderful polemic against Roland Barthes' account of his going to China, which is totally in the thrall of, of, of uh, Maoist hype. Anyway, and the book did very nicely. I mean, it's, it's not a great bestseller, but it's, it's, it certainly paid its way. And that was, that was a, the work of impulse at some level, impulse and love. Mm. I think that the fans of the series, the dedicated readers appreciate that element to it because it definitely feels yeah. like a labor of love. Well, it has been. <laughs> yeah. Good. So we wanted to end this interview a little bit doing a, a lightning round of some just very brief questions and answers. Okay. We've already kind of touched on some of these questions throughout our discussion. So you can either just repeat yourself or just nope. maybe find find a new new idea. But we, we have just a few quick, quick ones. Book that you are especially proud to bring back. Oh, dear. I mean, this is a sort of... Um, <laughs> that, uh, 
me. I mean, every my mind goes blank over these sorts of things. But uh, yeah, yeah, I get yeah. that. Sure. I I armed myself with the red thread in order to uh, do that, so to come up with that sort of thing. Sure. Book that would. Well, anyway, a book that I really didn't expect to bring back, and again, one that was a matter of of just love, and there was it was too good not to do was Peach Blossom Fan. I mean, there was another case where I said we cannot mm -hmm. do a. 16th century Chinese Ming uh, Ming Dynasty, uh, or actually it's Qing Dynasty opera in verse. But again, I was just it was too too amazing and too unlike um, this and, and too wonderful a melodrama to finally not do it. Uh, as I say that, I, I said no to to a friend who'd recommended it, and then after some years, I, I I sat down and read it all the way through. And and I another one of my principles is to repent at leisure. <laughs> I like that phrase. I got to be honest, Peach Blossom Fan, I think, is the book I am most excited to cover on this <laughs> podcast at some point. So, yes, I, oh, I cannot wait to read that one. <laughs> I hope it lives up to this Is there a book that surprised you, perhaps, in the way that, like, readers connected with it that you weren't expecting? Well, The Hall of Uselessness is a case of a book that really did find an audience, and, and I thought that it, it might not at all. Mm-hmm. We, we talked a little bit about this one, but books that you think more people should read in the collection. Uh, well, as I said, the Chinese, I mean, sorry, the Spanish, those Spanish novels are wonderful. I also mm. love from the same era and, and in a way, albeit it's not at all Spanish, a book that I, I particularly, there are two late, late 19th century German novels, one Fondant's uh, Irretrievable and the other one, um, Storm's Rider on a White Horse. Rider on a White Horse was a book that I picked up. It was the old Signet Classics, which was a very venturesome imprint mm -hmm. in the early 60s when Dr. O was there and Toni Morrison and so on. And they had hired the poet James Wright to translate. I mean, they sort of hired poet and writer friends who had some, some knowledge of another language, sometimes kind of made up knowledge, like Robert Bly's, apparently his, his Selma Lagerlöf is more Bly than Lagerlöf. <laughs> but uh, James Wright did Theodore Storm, and I was interested in that because I liked Wright's poetry, and I came home to take a bath. And, and I, again, I sat down to read it, and I thought, you know, I can't, I can't really do a book about a late 19th century dyke master. It's just not going to be something that anybody's very interested in. But it's a great book. It's a totally great book. <laughs> anyway, and by the end, by the time I finished the title, the uh, the title novella, I thought it's also you know a ghost story and so on. You know we have to do it. So those those I'm very fond yeah. of those books. I'm also fond of the Hungarian writer Krudi, a totally strange writer, Sunflower and um, mm -hmm. in, and the Sinbad stories, like nothing else really, and and not really even. They they might they you might as well say that you could say they aren't really novels they're just crudy things you know who know crudy tape. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is there a book that you couldn't publish but that you wanted to? Oh well, I mean I've lost books to other publishers over the years. I mean New Directions does Ingeborg Bachmann's Melina. I would have loved to have done, but it found a wonderful publisher. So mm, okay, sure. uh, that's good at least. Yeah, that's what matters. And is there a book you most hope to publish in the future that you're not already working on? Oh, hmm, probably, but you know what? It would be impolitic to mention it. So <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, that's yeah, actually yeah. probably true. Yeah, because it is. I mean, it is true that there is, and it's it's good. These different publishing programs are complementary, but they are also more competitive too. So yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. 
And for people that I think is a good book to read is that what you just pulled out, which was the red thread that you edited together, gave us a really good sense of like the sweep, the the history behind Mm -hmm. it and gave a good idea of like the direction you guys kind of went with it. And it helped form some of our questions for this, this interview. So definitely look that book up. Good. Thank you. Because I thought that that was fun to put together, and and I tried to make it. I tried. There is a th- sort of thread, whether it, which well, there's a sort of there's a secret plan to it. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to become conspiracy theories. People are going to read into the lines on that. Anyway. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Edwin, and for for bringing these books into print. They've given us many hours of joy reading, and now talking about it. Now that we have the podcast. Thank you for having a podcast devoted to the books and, and for talking. It's been a pleasure as, as you know, it, it's, it's been an incredible pleasure and privilege to be able to, to, to work with these books over these more than 20 years now. So. Well, it's pretty crazy that six months after starting this show as absolute nobodies in the publishing world, living in Albuquerque, we're now living in New York City. Mm-hmm. and talking to Edwin Frank. It's incredible. Are there any moments in the first season that stick out in your mind? Or are there any books that have stuck with you the longest since we started? Well, starting at the beginning, High Winds in Jamaica was a shocking book. It was great to meet Simon. It was wild that Vivian Gornick agreed to be on the show. Why did she do that? Alina was incredibly well-spoken. Oh my gosh. And a wealth of knowledge about so many things. Uh-huh. Canaan was amazing, and I loved that book. One of my favorites in this initial run, and I think if anything, I learned more in that episode than I did in the rest of our episodes. It was really awesome to have Joshua on, who won our raffle. Yeah, we hope but to have But he's also that. soon to be a published author. We played a chess game. We talked to Mariano with Adam Morgan, who was a total professional. And I found a fellow Bologna fan in that moment as well, which was really oh, nice. Oh, right, right. Talking to Anna about Turtle Diary, a book we loved. A person that we love. Jose picked this wacky Russian book. That was fun to read. And he brought all of his many years of knowledge to the table. And we got to talk to an eminent film critic, Farron Nemi. One of our combined heroes. And we got to talk about this famous movie as well as the book. Mm -hmm. And then... Anthony Beaver, the great historian. And especially as far as Russian war history and Vasily Grossman specifically, we couldn't have found a better guest. No. We so grateful for Anthony to come on the show. I just, every single episode was a winner in my mind. I've loved every second of it. That being said, we do have a few new things in store, potentially. For season two? Yes. Wow. First of all, As we've mentioned, we moved to New York City, and while we're here, we're hoping that we can have some live events. So if you're in the area, keep your eye out for those. We'll post them on all of our social media sites. We're hoping to record more episodes in person in a new studio space. Yeah. So that should be a better listening experience for Mm -hmm. multiple reasons. And finally, we're excited to announce that we're going to be launching a Patreon soon. I hate how corny that sounds. We're excited to announce we'll be asking for your money. We're leaving that in. We've been kicking around some ideas for what we want to do with that. But if any of you have 
any convictions about what you would like to see or hear, please reach out and let us know. We'd love to hear the feedback. We also have had differing opinions on spoilers and how much of that we should or shouldn't include. So if you have a strong opinion about that, also, please let us know. For sure. We're trying to get the temperature. So thank you again for listening. We have a lot of fun episodes and guests planned for the next season. But we can announce for now that we are going to be talking Aikenfield next for our season two premiere. Woohoo! Cannot wait. Gotta say, guys, we're reading it now. It's amazing. And that's that. Season one out. Bye!